0: You're listening to FIC Resources for Church Leaders. In this episode, you'll hear Don Carson, research professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, and president of the Gospel Coalition, speak at the 2018 FIC Leaders Conference. Defeater beliefs are beliefs that defeat other beliefs. As our culture frees itself more and more from Christian moorings, it adopts many defeater beliefs that make Christian witness an increasing challenge. This second of two seminars identifies some of the strongest of the current clamouring defeater beliefs and explores ways of responding to them.
1: Yesterday I gave a brief overview of defeater beliefs and how they work and how Christians should think of them. Today I want to deal with just one such defeater belief. Someone responds to our witness by saying, You can't be sure of your interpretation. You can't be sure that what you're saying is the truth. It's just not possible. Now what lies behind that is a whole lot of postmodern assumptions, but sometimes when we are hit with something like that, we don't know immediately how to respond. We've just been sidelined. Our very dogmatism, which might be attractive to some, um, becomes a ground for dismissal by others. And so we need to think through how this defeater belief works and how to begin to respond to it. Now, a little historical perspective might be helpful. In the past, most people thought that the right interpretation of Scripture depended on having mature hermeneutics, that is, mature principles of interpretation even when I was at seminary, which is not that many decades ago. Well, it is quite a few decades ago, but but still, within my lifetime. (laughs) I, um, I was brought up in hermeneutics by reading not Grant Osborne's The Hermeneutical Spiral, which hadn't been invented yet, but Bernard Ram's Protestant biblical interpretation. Now, that book is still worth reading, although its assumptions belong to the modernist world rather than the postmodern world. In Bernard Ram's Protestant Biblical Interpretation, a very useful book, third edition, uh, he he dealt with how you interpret any part of scripture. Some of it was a consideration of how grammar works, how literary genre works, how you interpret parables, how you interpret apocalyptic, what you do with narrative, Sessions, plot, discourse, and all of that. Um, And he he tried to show us how proof texting could lead you into a lot of problems, but where it was justifiable and what to do with word studies and, 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 and so on. And the assumption in many Bible colleges and seminaries, in the evangelical world at least, but even beyond the evangelical world, was that if you got your hermeneutics right, if your hermeneutics were mature, you could plug in the text turn the crank, and out comes truth. Hermeneutics plus biblical text, turn the crank, and out comes truth. So that there were some seminaries which shall remain nameless to protect the guilty. There were some seminaries that openly said, you don't really need to study historical theology, what the church has thought in other times. You don't really need to know what John Chrysostom thought or what Luther thought or... Calvin or Wesley or anybody else, because they're, they're merely exemplars of Christians who happen to live in a different age, who are themselves trying to plug in the text and turn the crank and out comes truth. And whether they got it right or wrong, well, the way you check it out is not by studying their historical mistakes. The way you, you, you check it out is by making sure that your hermeneutics are really good. You, you, you see, that's, that's what, what you do. So responsible, sophisticated hermeneutics plus authoritative biblical text, turn the crank, out comes truth. And you know that you're right because of your hermeneutics. Of course, eventually you start discovering that there are question marks that have to be attached to this. After all, there are other groups other than evangelicals who have a high view of Scripture who nevertheless come to different Interpretations, why? Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, are inerrantists. Conservative Mormons are inerrantists. Both of them come to massively different readings, whereas they teach in their schools that they have principles of interpretation that are surely right. It's those evangelicals that have got it all wrong. And then even within our own camps, like the FIEC, to go no farther, there are both Baptists and Paedo-Baptists. Or if you want equivalent terminology, Paedo-Baptists and Kredo-Baptists. And each side thinks the other side is wrong. Now, we may have agreed to bury the hatchet enough to accept members from the other camp. We're not Baptists. But on the other hand, um, implicitly, we're saying that the other side is wrong. One of the most amusing things we do in the Gospel Coalition is to sick Lig Duncan against Mark Dever, uh, each uh, strong in his own heritage, and each quite willing to say, as they give each other hugs and speak in each other's churches and so on, quite quite eager to say that the other one is not only mistaken, but wrong, and sinning against God because they've got a false interpretation. Yeah. Uh, th- that's the entailment of saying that one right is one view is right and the other view is wrong. And then neither is saying... Um, Well, I'm not quite sure, but on balance of probabilities, I think I come down on this side. They're not saying that. They're saying my interpretation of Scripture is right. Your interpretation of Scripture is wrong. And the other one is saying exactly the same thing, but with reverse polarity. And so we discover after a while that the the idea of having an ideal hermeneutics that guarantees everything is a little problematic. But, But there are other bits of evidence. A few years ago... Uh, the Africa Study Bible came out. About three-quarters of the authors of this Africa Study Bible were either Africans most of their lives, and this is cutting in and out. Does this mean the batteries are going? If if it cuts in and out again, switch me to this mic. Um, uh, Three-quarters of the people were either um, themselves Africans, uh, or, or else they were people that had lived all their lives in Africa. And, and the, the advertisement for this uh, one-volume study Bible, uh, when it was sold in North America, was uh, always, um, for the first time we hear the voice of the church without the filter of Western confessional theology. Now we'll find out what another culture really thinks about Scripture. And I thought, well, that's an interesting bit of advertisement. It fits into the diversity models of our age. Uh, I think I better read this commentary. So I read it. Not every paragraph, but an awful lot of it. And I discovered that 90, 95% of it was indifferentiable from any evangelical commentary that you'd get over here. There were some bits that emphasized different things, such as um, bits on ancestor worship, bits on female genital mutilation, things like that that are not central to Western experience and challenge, although with immigrant populations, that's changing. Um, and, 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 and you realize that, that that does make sense. That is, um, we're all studying the same Bible. I don't care whether you're Kikuyu in, in, in Kenya or, or, or uh, an Anglo-Saxon uh, from uh, Scotland uh, it, it doesn't really make much difference. We've still got the same Bible. You, you, you do want to get your hermeneutics right, but, but, but it's, it shouldn't be too surprising that we share the same theology. But there are those differences just the same that divide Calvinist from Arminian and Baptist from Pado baptist and so on. So, so we, we do realize afresh that, that um, hermeneutics can be a little more difficult. Now, what changed things was the rise of what came to be called the new hermeneutic. In traditional hermeneutics, it works like this. I, the the interpreter, the knower, address the text with a question. And the text answers back with its answer. A straight line question and an answer back from the text. So a, a lot of good interpretation depends on asking the right questions and having acceptable categories to hear the answer that comes back from the text. The text won't lead you astray, it's God's word, but you must ask the right question. So a lot of hermeneutics is asking the right question of the right text, you see? And then then the text comes back and gives you the answer. So I ask the question, the text gives me an answer. I ask another question, the text gives me another answer. And as I build up questions and answers, so my ability to ask shrewd questions of the next round is enhanced and so on. That was the old line hermeneutics. But after a while, you begin to face some questions. Aren't the questions I'm going to answer to ask as a white, middle class, bilingual, Canadian, with a certain education and certain traditions, all in Canada or Europe, none in the US, aren't my questions necessarily going to be different from a single, unwed mother, prostitute, on the streets of Lagos? Or choose your alternative? That just was one I made up. The questions are going to be a bit different. The the answers you're going to hear are going to be a bit different, aren't they? And so out of such considerations and out of the impact of World War II, for that matter, there arose the language of the hermeneutical circle Instead of a straight line in, an innocent question, a pure question, with a straight line back, a true answer, it's rather more like I hit the text with a glancing blow. My, my, my question is not straight. It, it's too much a reflection of who I am. And the answer comes back and hits me with a glancing blow. It, it almost, as it were, interprets me. I in, Understand the text a certain way because of who I am. I've got categories to hear only certain things and not other things. So in the West, for example, we interpret many, many texts in highly individualistic terms. In Africa, texts are more traditionally interpreted in corporate and and community terms. And and, and each side is is likely to interpret things uh, according to the matrix of their own culture. So it's not as if I have a straight line in and a straight line back. I sort of hit it with a glancing blow and it comes back and Hits me at a certain kind of angle as well. But that answer nevertheless changes me so that when I ask a question the next time round, it's not straight in, straight out. I'm a little bit changed from my first round of questions. And so it comes back and I hear an answer back and gradually you get a circle going round and round and round and round. And And where do you step off? And this fit in with the rising movement that is sometimes called postmodernism that tended to relativize all knowledge. Postmodern is a terrible category, but we're stuck with it. Um, I did some uh, hunting in um, various university circles where I work, what does postmodernism look like? What does it mean to you? What comes to your mind when you think of postmodernism? This is just a few years ago. It's an incomplete list, but this is what I was told postmodernism was. Now, I could give you historical backgrounds and and lineage and (laughs) philosophical antecedents and all of that, but that's not nearly as interesting as this list. Number one, skepticism rules the day. Doubt questions all statements. Number two, objectivity is out, subjectivity is in. Objectivity defined as standing on the outside of a situation, looking into it and having the capacity to judge it. No one has the right to judge anything. Number three, there is no absolute capital T truth. All truth is relative and is valid. What may be true for you may not necessarily be true for me. Number four, question everything. Nothing escapes deconstruction. Number five, the the, 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 the postmodern perspective is experiential. The experience is essential for the development of a person. Number six, postmoderns are spiritual, as defined by their terms, with or without God. Number seven, it's pluralistic. The question of belief in God may be met with define God. Do you mean Jesus, Yahweh, Allah, Buddha, Sophia, Krishna, the exclusivity, The exclusivity of the Christian God and Jesus as the one way is unacceptable for postmoderns. Number eight, truth and religion are often Redefined in terms of consensus and whatever works for you, the person of Jesus simply becomes what you want him to be. Number nine, there is no meta-narrative, no grand story, no big picture to inspire or explain the purposes of life. History depends on how it is read and how it is interpreted. Each person is free to create their own meaning from life and its events. Make it say what you want it to say, give it the meaning that you want it to have. Number 10, everyone has a valid point of view. It depends on where you stand in your individual perspective. Does that sound vaguely Descriptive of British culture. So so that today, as far as I can see in universities, there's much less postmodern theory. There are fewer people reading Jacques Derrida. There are fewer people reading Michel Foucault than 35 years ago. Far fewer. On the other hand, the effluent, the results of that uh, period of time when everybody was studying the European uh, postmoderns is, is still with us. The, the, the effluent is still here, and these things are now just so largely presupposed that people get very angry very quickly if you if if you cast doubt on them, if you call them into question. So what I'm going to do is uh, offer some responses. Uh, the first three are logical, philosophical, topical that are grounded in scripture, but at the end of the day, they're not texts. The last three are textually grounded. So bear with me if you're waiting for the last three when I start with the first three. Number one, it is desperately important to avoid thinking that we can enjoy the certainty that God enjoys, that belongs only to omniscience. Let me repeat that. It is desperately important to avoid thinking that we can enjoy the certainty that God enjoys that belongs only to omniscience. The way it's often presented is, can you be sure that your interpretation of X is correct when you don't know everything about X? X and all of its relationships, X and its social historical context, x in, in this particular language versus another language, you, you can't possibly know everything about it. So your interpretation of X, whatever X is, is, is bound to be in some measure distorted. You, you, you can't know everything about anything. And if that's the case, then to talk about knowing things is waste of time. It's, it's, it's a reflection of arrogance. The only person who knows everything is God, the only one who can know absolutely perfectly is omniscience. And the answer to that is you're right, of course. When we speak of human knowledge, we're not talking about knowing as God knows. Omniscience is an incommunicable attribute of God. The Bible says, be holy, for I am holy, as we saw. It does not say, be omniscient, for I am omniscient. And when we die and go to be with the Lord and await resurrection existence in the new heaven and the new earth and eventually have resurrection bodies, we still won't know everything that God knows. We won't be omnipotent. We won't be omnipresent. We won't be omniscient because those attributes belong to God and God alone. The entailment of that, of course, is that we should recognize that even in eternity, we'll continue to grow in knowledge. I can't see why we shouldn't think of more study in the new heaven and the new earth. The Bible speaks of men and women from every language, and tribe, and people, and nation. You ever ask the question, what language are we going to speak in heaven? Well, empire dies hard. A lot of us presuppose English. When I talk to my Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ, they have another answer, and there are more of them than there are of us. (laughs) And then, of course, there are some Hebraists who think that Hebrew must be the language of God. So are all my Kamba-speaking friends going to have to learn Hebrew, or will it they get a shot, as it were, an, an injection that will somehow make them able to speak in fluent Hebrew, and then we'll get along fine? I, I don't see the rationale for that anywhere in Scripture. When we speak of people from every language and tribe and people and nation, we expect the tribes to be represented with all their differences, don't we? So, so there will be four-foot-six pygmies from Bolivia, and there'll be six foot eight Swedes with blonde hair, maybe balding. There'll be, there'll be uh, short rotund types and tall skinny types. There's nothing to, that I can see in scripture that says we won't be recognizable. So if, if, our, if our tribal racial backgrounds are preserved in resurrection existence, which is, I think, what we all presuppose. I I don't think we think that when we get to heaven, we'll all look exactly the same way. Then why shouldn't we still be speaking our languages? And if it takes me a million years to learn Mandarin, who cares? (laughs) I can use the second million years to have a go at Arabic. In other words, we will never be omniscient. But the fact that we will never be omniscient and are not omniscient now does not warrant us to conclude that therefore we can know nothing. In other words, we cannot ever know as God knows. Human knowledge can never aspire to divine knowledge. But we can speak of human knowing as true knowledge even though it's not exhaustive knowing, as only omniscience enjoys. Do, 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 do you see? So f- for postmoderns to set up as the standard perfect exhaustive knowledge before you can speak of knowing anything is to set up an idolatrous standard, the standard that belongs only to God. Do you do, 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 do you see? Besides, I'm sufficiently perverse that if they insist that they know that we can't know, I want to ask them, how do you know? If they've only got a statistical likelihood that we can't know, then maybe we can know. So the dogmatism of the postmodern cause was always a bit of a farce, and most people who have studied these things have come to that conclusion as well. There is an overreach in postmodern claims that is, quite, quite frankly, just about laughable. We can know the certainty that is appropriate to God's image bearers. We cannot know with a certainty that is appropriate to omniscience himself. This is not a question of either being omniscient or being certain of nothing. Rather, there is a middle span where we can know with the kind of knowledge that human beings can know. I'll give you lots of biblical text for that in a few (laughs) moments. Number two, experience itself shows us that we can learn and gain knowledge. Now, because there are a lot of preachers here who have studied Greek, let me remind you how you started to learn it. Unless you were brought up in a school where you got Greek and Latin from a very young age. You, you, you started learning it at college. My father started me on Latin when I was uh, five. Latin is a dead language, as dead as dead can be. It killed all the Romans, and now it's killing me. <laughs> that was the first poem he taught me about Latin. The second was, Amo amas, I loved alas, and she was tall and slender. Amas amat, she laid me flat. Beware the feminine gender, and so I I began to learn about paradigms and and so and, and, and so on. But I, I really wasn't serious about classical Greek until I was an undergraduate, and then after that, seminary, and so I learned a bit more Greek along the line. But how did you begin to study Greek? Alphabet. Alpha. Beta, gamma, delta. Poor, this is hard. Epsilon. And after E comes F, doesn't it? But it's not phi. What What's what's next in the Greek? Alpha, beta. And then eventually you get beyond that and you, you start doing basic paradigms. Logos, logon, lagu. Log- Boy, there's a lot to memorize in these inflected languages, isn't there? and 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 then verbal paradigms luo luis and hours spent memorizing these paradigms and you, you haven't got to participles yet beastly things and 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 then gradually after a whole year of greek under your belt you're beginning to work your way through texts slowly but but understandingly. and then you do a second year of greek and a third year of greek and maybe a fourth year of greek and and you can read a good Set of the New Testament chapters with some ease. You like a lexicon not too far away or other help, and maybe your teacher will also get you onto uh, um, s- s- some some of the uh, other first-century writers. Uh, read a little bit of Philo, for example, or maybe get you onto a bit of classical history—Thucydides and Herodotus and so on. And so your your horizons expand, and 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 you know a lot more Greek. But but I'll tell you one of the things you've learned at this stage is how little Greek you know anyway. So you look backward and you look forward and you you realize how much Greek you've learned and how much Greek you still don't know. But what does that tell you? It tells you you can know some things. Of course, it's a tricky thing. In first year Greek, you learn a lot of rules. Second year Greek, you learn all the exceptions. Third year Greek, you're told don't trust the rules. (laughs) <laughs> but that, too, is part of learning a language, any, any language. It's, it's, it's part of, 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 of learning uh, English if, if you come from some other culture. You, you learn with rules that are too rigid to begin with, and then you discover the exceptions. And... Now, we could have done the same thing with how did you learn calculus or how did you learn poetry. But the point is we can learn. And we can speak of knowing Greek. Oh, you can put in the footnotes and how relative that knowing Greek really is, you know, compared with some people. My Greek's not, not bad. But, y- y- you know, I'm an exegete. I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm a theologian. I, I haven't devoted my entire life to nothing but Greek. I, I know some Greek scholars that leave me in the dust. John Lee, for example, in, in Australia. His mind is soaked in Greek texts in a way that mine is not. So in other words, you can speak of knowing even when the knowing is partial, even when it's correctable with further knowing. To cast doubt on the possibility of true knowing because you don't have omniscient knowing is a false dilemma. In other words, experience stands against postmodern claims to zero certainty. Number three, there are models that help us recognize how we learn. Now, the new hermeneutic people with their hermeneutical circle pictured either a straight line in and a straight line back, or A hermeneutical circle, you hit a glancing blow and it comes back and hits you and changes you and then you go around again and around and around and around and around and you never get off the hermeneutical merry-go-round. Those are the only two models, straight in or straight out. But a lot of people have developed models that are much more realistic and much more in line with our experience. One of those models is the hermeneutical spiral. It might be that when you first ask questions, they're so dumb or they're so ignorant or there's so much shaped by your character, or by your background, or what side of the bed you got up on this morning, or what time of the month it is, or who knows what, whether you're depressed or in a, a, a blue funk, or w- whether you're encouraged, or whether you're feeling triumphalistic or envious. All of those things can affect how we, how we ask questions and hear. Uh, that's true. But as you keep going around and round and round, you don't stay out from the center at the same distance. Your questions do become better with time. It's more like a hermeneutical spiral as you approach the truth. If the dead bullseye center is perfect knowledge, you never hit it. Only God does. But you can get close enough that you can speak truly of human knowledge and warrant human certainty, even though it's not the certainty that can belong only to God. Or to use another model, that I've developed elsewhere in the gagging of God and elsewhere. This is a mathematical model. For those of you who hate mathematics and think it's for nerds and eggheads, you may tune out for the next 45 seconds or so and then pick it up again. Picture an X, Y axis, X, Y axis. The Y axis is measuring time. The X axis is measuring the state of your knowledge and its distance from reality. So when you first start studying Greek or any other subject, on the X, Y axis, you're way up here, close in because time has just started in this discipline, but away, way off the X line because your knowledge is so small and distorted compared with what perfect knowledge would be. But then with the progress of time, that line develops a curve that is closer and closer and closer to the x-axis. It's an asymptotic approach. The line is an asymptote. That's the way a lot of human knowing is. You never, never, never quite touch the line. To touch the line would mean you'd have to have the knowledge of God. But nevertheless, you can be so close to the line that in some domain or other, you really can speak of certainty. You, you, you can speak of what... We really do know. Um, So these are models that uh, uh, are truer to our experience and allow us to speak of, of human beings knowing things without claiming that we have perfect knowledge and while acknowledging that all of our knowledge is itself in principle correctable by God himself. Okay, those are the first three things. Now let's come to some biblical theological examples and so on. Number four, it is very important to remind ourselves of some of the bases of our knowledge in Scripture. Let's begin with Luke 1, 1 to 4. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first who are eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke does not say, of course, you can't possibly be certain about anything. He says, I'm writing so that you may know the certainty of what you've been taught. On what basis has he insisted that he's going to provide certainty for Theophilus. Well, quite frankly, on the basis of a lot of personal research, he acknowledges there are a lot of reports out there. And he's carefully examined as many as he can find. Many have undertaken to draw these things up, just as they were handed down by the witnesses. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, that is, not only the sources themselves, But he's tried to check out by his own exploration. You you can follow Luke's steps to virtually every major Christian center that's mentioned in the book of Acts. The we passages in Acts give some of this information, for example. So how do we know about what went on between Peter and Paul in in, uh, Antioch? Galatians 2, 11 to 14. Well, we know from Peter's writing, but we also know that Luke himself spent some time there. We can, we can place him there. How about Caesarea Philippi? How about Rome? How about Ephesus? You, you can place Luke in all of those places. And, and, and isn't it interesting that Luke, the doctor, is the one who tells us of the incarnation from Mary's perspective. I have a sneaky suspicion, I can't prove this, but it fits, that he and Mary had a wee word. He was a doctor. He could get away with questions that not everybody could get away with. And he engaged in accurate, careful research. And I've done all of this, he says, so that you, my dear Theophilus, can be certain of what you've heard in the preaching and the teaching. Now, to this you can also add the importance of scripture and and, and the inscripturated word borne along by the Spirit of God and so on and so on. All of that's true. But this text does not begin by saying, this text is inspired by God, though doubtless it is. It's it's part of scripture. It, It starts off by saying, I did my homework. I took great care and pains. Human knowing can be based on the careful research of other people. Or consider another text, first John chapter five. First John chapter five. Especially verse thirteen. I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's writing to people who believe and the fact that he can distinguish between believing and knowing shows that it is possible to believe something and still entertain some doubts. You, you, you believe that you have life. You believe that you are children of God. And I'm writing this book, he says, to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. So what are the things he says in that book that give warrant for saying, I know that I have eternal life? At the time of the Reformation, the Council of Trent, just beyond the Reformation, um, uh, insisted that to claim to know that you are saved and justified and and right with God was, was a mortal sin because you're claiming something that only God could know. That was for theological reasons, because they thought that a person, after all, who, who was in a state of grace could commit a mortal sin and not be in a state of grace. And so suddenly you're into a whole mess of doctrines about, about um, uh, whether you're, you, 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 you can be saved and lost and uh, the nature of sin and, and uh, the nature of perseverance. So there's, there's, a, there's a mess of theological doctrines that, that go along with this. But this is a bit different. Here, what's being envisaged is not a form of Catholicism as an opponent. What's being envisaged is a form of uncertainty that you should have unless you pass certain tests. So how is a person saved, accepted, in John's gospel? Well, in the first instance, it's, it's through the atonement that is provided by Christ. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. That's the ground, the basis. Then John offers three tests. A social test, you will love the brothers and sisters. An obedience test, you will bow to the lordship of Christ. And a truth test, you will affirm certain things about Jesus that were being denied by more and more people in the culture. And it's not best two out of three, as John casts them. It's it's all or nothing. There are three tests. You he can distinguish them, but by the time you get to chapter five, each is entailed by the other. If you if you pass one test truly, you're passing the other two. And then when he gets to all of the, all of the, uh, the, the the these tests, he finally concludes, I write to you these things, my dear children, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You believe, but so that you may know you have eternal life. And of course, that sort of emphasis goes back to the teaching of Jesus. By their fruit, you shall know them. How do you know who's a Christian and who's not? Well, according to Jesus, one of the evidences is uh, the evidence of their lives. By their fruit, you shall know them. Do Do you see? So if somebody claims to have the truth, to believe the gospel, to be a Christian, to be justified, and lives indifferentiably from the world and the flesh and the devil then he or she has failed the test. And you're not to credit them with salvation. So here is a kind of knowledge that is given not only to the elders of the church as they examine people for membership, but rather is given to believers themselves. I write to you who believe, my dear children, so that you may know and the assurance is grounded in Christ's cross work on our behalf, but it's subtly attested also by the transformation of life. I love the well-known utterance of, of uh, John Newton toward the end of his life. This is a simplified form of it, but, but, but nevertheless, toward the end of his life, he, he, he wrote, uh, uh, I am not what I want to be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what one day I will be, but I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is to say, uh, he could see the evidence of transformation in his own life, even if he's still growing in grace and has a way to go until the glorification of the last day. So here is not the certainty of perfect knowledge, the certainty of omniscience, but the certainty of observable transformation of life that enables you, it warrants you to say, with human knowledge, I know certain things. Do, 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 do you see? Th- those are the ways that the New Testament speaks of knowledge. And then again, there are chapters like Isaiah 40 to 45, especially the end of 41 to the end of 45, where, where God insists that he knows all things. He not only knows all things, unlike the idols. He brings them about. He can not only predict the future and never make a mistake. He not only can predict the future, but he guarantees the future because he brings the future to pass. So we are dealing, therefore, with a God who knows everything, who communicates some things to us. So in other words, part of our knowledge rests in our confidence in the God who does have omniscience. Now, that still raises some fundamental questions about how we know that he is omniscient, that has to do with revelation and a lot of other things that I could bring up in due course, Um, but it is important to see that the Bible speaks of human knowing, knowing of propositions, knowing of the truth of the gospel, knowing of our salvation, knowing of our status before God, um, knowing divine revelation and so on, Um, uh, without any embarrassment, without any suggestion whatsoever that we have to be omniscient to be able to claim these things, partly because we have an omniscient God who anchors them. Number five, it is crucial to recognize that our minds are not neutral machines, but are enmeshed in our lostness. Of course, we really must say something about 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person, which in the context means the person without the spirit, does not understand the things of God. They're foolishness to him, which is why in 1 Corinthians and often elsewhere in the New Testament, we need, as it were, two axes of revelation. The first axis of revelation is, is that which came in Public life, in the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world, and he was seen and touched. He rose from the dead and so forth. That's public arena. But even after Christ has risen from the dead, a lot of people don't believe. What's required is another axis of revelation, the work of the spirit to open up our blind eyes to see what is, in fact, true. This work of the Spirit is not a little bit of magic. It is dealing with our blindness, grounded in our sin and our self-focus and our self-confidence, to see what, in fact, is true, and to cast our entire lives and beings on Christ Jesus in consequence. So. In this subjective uh, uh, sense, you can make sense of what Elisha means when he cries out to God, open the young man's eyes. Uh, Opening the young man's eyes did not mean that suddenly the angels arrived. Uh, They were already there. The the, the Lord of hosts had provided them, but they were just not seen. So the truth of the gospel is true whether you see it or not, whether, whether you accept it or not, whether you believe it or not. But one of the things that happens in conversion is is people do see what previously they hadn't seen. So in other words, there is a dimension of Christian epistemology that is simply not open to unbelievers. That's what's meant at the end of 1 Corinthians 2, beyond 14 into 15 and 16, when we're told that the Christian understands all things. It doesn't mean all things Without exception, that would mean that we're omniscient. The Bible never says that. But it means all things in every dimension. The, 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 the lost person, the natural man, the, the person without the spirit, can only understand things in the lost dimension. The, 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 the glory of the gospel and what gospel life looks like is, is, a, is a closed door. Uh, but, but, but because we've been converted, we, we know what lostness looks like. We also know what foundness looks like. We, we, we know what it is like not to be able to see. We know what it's like to be spiritually blind. And we know what it's like now to be spiritually um, alert and able to see. So, so there is a sense in which the lost person is in no place to stand in judgment of the Christian because the Christian has an added epistemological dimension that is, in fact, the fruit of the spirit of the, of, of the living God working in our lives. In other words, far from being intimidated by people who say your problem as a Christian is that you're just too narrow, too bigoted, too ridiculously restricted to understand how people work in other cultures. The biblical answer to that is no, 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 no. my dear friend, you're the one who's too narrow. You haven't been converted. You don't see what's actually there. So, most of us who've been in evangelism for enough years can tell some stories about someone who was a sneering critic of Christian claims, um, laughed at the God of the Bible as a a mischievous, cruel-hearted God who doesn't care about suffering and and babies dying of cancer and, and all the problems are insurmountable in their eyes and too restricted, too narrow. And then somehow they get converted, and they see all the same texts, and they all are configured differently, so so, so that now they're amazed at God's mercy and and his wisdom and so on. And you you can't argue people into the kingdom like that. That, it, It takes the work of the Spirit of God. You can give all the arguments needed and try to present a biblical frame of reference, but... I talked with a young man some time ago, with whom I spent a lot of time on Skype, an hour a week or so, for about a year, year and a half, working through all kinds of intellectual objections and questions that he had. And um, at the end of this uh, time, in which he had read many, many philosophical books and all the new atheists and could cite them and so on, we gradually worked through these things step by step, one by one, step by step, one by one. And he said, okay, you've you've convinced me. The intellectual objections against Christianity are really not all that convincing. So I said, so why don't you bow the knee and become a Christian? He paused and said, because I don't want to. But if the Lord in his mercy does convert that young man, he will see. He will know, he will understand, and that's the work of the Spirit of God. That's why Romans eight sixteen gives such a marvelous attestation of the confirming work of the Holy Spirit. For those of you who follow historical theology, It's often assurance is often pictured like this. In Lutheran circles, if you're lacking in assurance, what you need is a better understanding of the doctrine of justification. If you really do understand justification by grace alone through faith alone, then you do have assurance because you really do trust the cross of Christ. But according to some readings, Calvin had a slightly different doctrine. There he would argue. Uh, people argue, Christian assurance, according to Calvin, they say, rested on a three-legged stool. Uh, the, The truth test, the social test, and the obedience test, and all of those tests come together. And then you add on top of that the affirming work of the Holy Spirit. Well, I thought that that was the way Luther and Calvin worked until I read Luther and Calvin and then discovered that they're a lot closer than people think, um, for for Calvin himself, um, the 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 ultimate ground, the ultimate confidence, is confidence in Christ and His crosswork. That, that that's where you ground Christian assurance, Christian knowledge that there, that people really are saved. But the truth test, the social test, the obedience test, uh, are are confirming things. They're they're, they're confirming elements, uh, but they're only confirming. And on top of that, there is this attesting work of the Spirit of God, as found in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. Last, God has not left himself without witness, especially the witness of Holy Scripture. One of the most remarkable passages in this regard is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, especially the last three verses, verses 29 to 31. The rich man opens his eyes after death, and he finds himself in torment. And somehow, in the structures of this story, he sees Abraham and Lazarus conversing with each other. Lazarus, in fact, is is in Abraham's bosom. He's resting on his chest at, at a banquet or something of that order. And you'd think that the first thing that the rich man would say when he sees Lazarus would be something like, oh boy, did I get that one wrong. I am so sorry. Can you ever forgive me? But in fact, he ignores Lazarus entirely. He plays as the race and culture card and addresses only the top dog, Abraham himself. Uh, Father Abraham, it's pretty hot down here. Would you send this minion to bring some water in it that I can cool my tongue? There's no sign of repentance at all. And of course, uh, Abraham responds. And then the, the rich man still in hell, has a second question when he's got rebuffed for the first. If you can't send uh, Lazarus because there's a great gulf fixed, at least send him back to earth so he can warn my family. I've got brothers. Now, this is, again, no sign of repentance. He's just concerned for his own family. Of course, there's there's care for family, but no sign of repentance. If, If he can't use Lazarus as a a kind of waiter to bring him water. Maybe he can be used as an errand boy to go back from the dead and and warn the brothers. And Abraham replies, they have Moses and the scriptures. Let them listen to them. The rich man in hell tries to correct Abraham's theology. That's how blind he is. No, Father Abraham, you got that one wrong. If someone rose from the dead, then they would believe. And Abraham replies, they have Moses and the scriptures. And if they do not listen to them, they will not believe even if someone rose from the dead. We would add today, they have the law and the prophets and the gospels and the epistles. And if they will not listen there, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. And by the time Luke penned those words, someone had risen from the dead. And countless millions still did not believe. So once again, Christians have an access to truth, to the mind of God, to the words of God, the thinking of God in Holy Scripture. which in some ways, is public. It's not a hidden, mystical book buried in some secret cavity, a cavern somewhere, that only the instructed, the, the esoterica priests, the elite of the elect can have access to. It's, it's public. It's public. Preach the word. But although it's public, we're a damned breed. God has not left himself without witness. And as I've watched, people come to certainty about the gospel and a certainty about their own state before God over the years. It's rarely owing to very clever epistemological arguments. It's owing to a nexus of things grounded in Holy Scripture, as they read and reread and reread and reread. And the spirit bears in on their spirit to convince them, this is the truth on which I live and die, both now and for all eternity. Let me conclude. I'm sure you've noticed that I have unhesitatingly mingled, on the one hand, open or scientific or public evidence and logic, how how to think about human knowing models of knowledge and all of that, with evidences that are coming only to the Christian through the scripture by the Spirit. That will not be an acceptable approach to those whose minds are blind, to those who are already committed to postmodern relativity. But I'm not restricted to their blindness. Christians need to explain the basis on which we hold that certain things are true and we can't have knowledge of them. We need to proclaim them loudly. But to pit sort of public arena type knowledge with the knowledge that comes in consequence of repentance and faith and the converting, envisioning, work of the Holy Spirit, is attestation in our lives, to pit these two against each other as if they are in different arenas, is already conceding too much. It's one God over the whole. All truth is God's truth. Proclaim it, whether it is accepted or not. Never think that by your apologetics you can argue people into the kingdom. It still requires the work of the Spirit and a bent knee. Let us pray. Our Father, we cannot ever forget that we are exhorted to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. So we want to be faithful witnesses, even while we recognize that the miracle of sight is in your gift, not ours. The miracle of faith is in your gift, not ours. So we beg of you to enable us to be bold and to be happy to leave the results to you, to look for fruit because you are a gracious, caring God, because you yourself call to the nations and say, turn, turn. Why will you die? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Have mercy upon us as we bear witness and think about these things. Have mercy on the people to whom we bear witness. For Jesus' sake. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this resource from FIEC. For more resources for church leaders, subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app and visit our website at fiec.org.uk. And don't miss our new podcast launching this autumn, Independence. It will feature regular discussions on relevant topics to help independent churches work together to reach Britain for Christ. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts or watch on YouTube and the FIEC website.